0: In this final episode of my three-part interview with Dr. Ed Epperly, author of Fiend Incarnate, Velisca Axe Murders of 1912, the Reverend Lynn George Jacqueline Kelly has long been considered one of the most viable suspects in this case, due in large part to testimony from witnesses who claimed he told them about the murders before the bodies were ever discovered. Some, however, believe that the mentally ill Kelly was nothing more than a scapegoat. Dr. Epperly also offers his opinion on Paul Mueller, a recent popular suspect in the case, known as the man from the train. Let's continue where we left off in the last interview. F.F. Jones has been exonerated, if not by the court of public opinion, at least by a grand jury. Now, investigators set their sights on suspect Lynn George Kelly. And by the way, this episode contains some graphic language, adult themes, listener discretion is highly advised. So we're going to save the most interesting suspect, in my opinion, for last. Here, uh, you, you talked briefly about the Reverend Lynn George Kelly earlier, but now let's get into him a little more. What should we know about him?
1: Yeah, Kelly. Uh, uh, Kelly remains a viable suspect. Uh, he's not the most popular suspect. The uh, the objection to Kelly as a suspect. As one of the objections has always been his stature. He was a tiny man, five foot two and weighed 119 pounds. He, he's not your axe murderer prototype, I don't think. People just can't believe how could he have done this. Uh, that's a question that uh, comes up all of the time. Uh, secondly, um, he was... Obviously, mentally ill, extremely mentally ill. I mean, he was schizophrenic, diagnosed schizophrenic. Uh, had some paranoid tendencies, uh, a very disturbed sexual life. All of these things caused some people to feel well. He he was he was kind of ripe for the picking that people could suspect him when, in reality, he was just a pathetic figure that happened to be in town that night. But he he drew attention to himself at the very beginning of the the case. He immediately started writing letters. He wrote letters to everybody, some of which still exist. But he wrote to the Burns Detective Agency, to the police force in Villisca, to the county uh, sheriff in Montgomery County, to the county attorney in Montgomery County, to the state attorney general, to several detectives who were working on the case. And these were long epistles of uh, three and four and five page long, densely typed. Kelly was an uh, uh, expert typist. He, he uh, was a stenographer. He did some court reporting, things like that. He had come from England and came as a Methodist preacher. He preached all over the Midwest. He started in North Dakota. He went to Minnesota, he went to Iowa, he went to Nebraska, he went to Kansas. Never stayed more than uh, months, sometimes uh, weeks, but usually months or maybe a year here and there. Uh, generally recognized as an intelligent man. He wrote a book, uh, which would n- not necessarily prove him intelligent, but he did. He was acknowledged by most of the places that he preached that he was a, a good preacher uh, an intelligent. He was fairly liberal. He's got sermons on uh, why Christ would be a Christian socialist today, that kind of thing. He, he was uh, somewhat supportive of that. At the same time, he was quite prejudiced. He was, when he was living in New Jersey after the murder, he was um, the chaplain of the branch of the New Jersey Ku Klux Klan. They had a big march in the town he was living in, and he gave the invocation and marched with the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, that was primarily because he was uh, bitterly anti-Catholic. His family had, I think they were Ulster Irish to some extent, uh, Scotch Irish, uh, even though they were born and, and spent most of their time in England, but I think the father had had Irish connections and he um his father died when he was 4 and he did have though uh two siblings he had a younger brother and a younger sister who led perfectly normal lives apparently and um he uh, he married he married in nineteen eighteen ninety nine. i think it was maybe it's 98 the marriage was never consummated uh, i'm pretty sure that's true I got that from Oscar Winterstrand, the county attorney. He had gotten uh, to know Kelly well. Kelly was arrested in uh, May of nineteen seventeen, and he was tried in September. So there was a four-month period there where they were. He was held in jail, and uh, Oscar had uh, extensive interviews with him, and they got to be relatively friendly. Uh, he got to be quite friendly and supportive of his wife, Laura. Uh, Laura was a head taller than he was. She was um, 12 years older than he was, and she was very much uh, supportive of him. She stood by him through all of the trials and tribulations he had. Uh, but he, he, she talked to uh, Oscar, and one day she told him that the marriage had never been consummated because uh, he was impotent. I don't have any reason to doubt that, because he had all kinds of sexual hang-ups and uh, odd behaviors. Besides writing letters, he sent a bloody shirt to a laundry in, in Council Bluffs the week after the murder, and that wasn't known right away. But by the fall. Word of that had gotten out to the so, uh, detectives that picked up on that. Detectives were, some detectives were suspicious of him because of his interest in the murder, his obsession. He talked about it all of the time. He sometimes preached about, about it. He um, happened to be in Belisca every two weeks that summer because he was serving two country churches as he was getting ready to go into the Presbyterian denomination. And he was going to start in the Presbyterian seminary that fall. And to support himself, they had placed him in these churches. So that put him in Villisca every two weeks. And he went down to the house, happened to be there when some detectives were going through. So he went through the murder house two weeks after the murder. And uh, he did... he, he talked about it. He found a little vial, a little glass vial lying under the bed and thought it would probably have been left by the murderer and was very excited about that. Someone uh, was looking at a, a smudge on a doorway, and he thought that was a thumbprint, and so he put his thumb up against it to see if it was the uh, same. Uh, he, that kind of thing. And then in his letters, he talked about uh, seeing... The killer was disturbed by somebody walking by, a couple walking by, and had stopped and gone out on the front porch. Uh, things like that caused people t- to wonder about him. They they were doubtful because he was so unstable that they were afraid he was imagining these things. He claimed to have heard the thud of the axe and so on. Then uh, he, uh, perhaps the most damning, Testimony he got on the train at five nineteen in the morning of the murder, and it wasn't discovered till about eight. No oh, it's hard to say, but eight o'clock eight fifteen something like that, maybe seven thirty even but I doubt it I think a little later than that, so he was out of town at least two hours before the murder was discovered, but uh there was testimony at his trial that uh he got on a train uh, an hour west of Villisca or more and got left the main line, got on the branch line, and rode up to his home, which was in Macedonia, Iowa, little town northwest of Villisca. And uh, he then met two of his parishioners, a couple named Simmons, who were in the car when he got on it. And he went up to them. He was very nervous, very acting strangely. And said that uh, the worst thing in, in the history of the world happened in Villisca last night. A whole family was wiped out. And he talked about the murder uh, before it had been discovered. And finally, uh, under pressure, three days before the murder, maybe two days, he broke down after a all-night grilling and confessed the murder. He said he was out walking. Now, uh, he was staying with the Presbyterian minister and his family, and the Presbyterian minister had a serious throat condition, and he slept out in a tent along with his family. So Kelly was in the house alone, and Kelly said he couldn't sleep, so he got out, he left the house and took a walk. Well, he was looking for houses and windows to peek on, into because he is, was caught doing that in many communities different times. And so he said he was walking down the street. Uh, Presbyterian manse is about two and a half blocks straight west on the same road as the murder house. And so he was walking down that road in the middle of the road. And all of a sudden he heard uh, the Lord's voice come to him and said, Suffer the little children to come unto me. He had just noticed these two children going to bed in this northwest corner downstairs room of his house. And he heard the voice and he raised his hands. He said over his head and said, yea, Lord, thy servant heareth. And I went out into the backyard and it just, the Lord provides. There was the ax and I picked it up. I went in and when I was going up the stairs, I thought I was climbing Jacob's ladder and I killed the, the parents. And the Lord said, more to be done, and I went into that south room, and I thought I was sending those children somewhere. I didn't know where I was sending them, but I thought I was sending them to a better place, and so I I killed those children, and now I'm down in the living room, standing there, and the Lord's voice came a third time saying, more to be done, and I went into that north room, and I killed the uh, two girls who were there, and uh, then I stayed in the house until the sun was just cracking the horizon, and I left, went home, and got my bag, and got on the train, and came home. That was a a paraphrasing of his confession. And um, he was brought to trial, and those primary elements that I talked about were offered against him, and uh, then uh, a number of other witnesses for and against were Held a sensational trial, went on for about a month. I think it was the fourth of September that they called the court to, to in session, and it finished about the first of October. the The defense argued that Kelly was, as one of his lawyers said, Kelly wasn't only a nut; he's a whole carload of nuts. But he uh, he didn't commit the murder. They admitted that he was mentally unbalanced and that they said that he thought that he did it at times perhaps, but he never, there's no evidence that he did it. And they raised objection to the bloody shirt because uh, they asked, well, the laundry people, do you get bloody shirts? Oh, yeah, we, we get a lot of bloody shirts. This is the time of straight razors. People were forever cutting themselves when they shaved and so that evidence the jury didn't want to convict kelly they were convinced he was innocent and so that was easier to dismiss the couple who testified about his testimony on the train were elderly they're somewhat younger than i am but they were thought of as elderly in those days and they both they couldn't say that they were it was the 10th of june the day of the murder that they were on the train they they didn't remember it'd been five years, and they said well we it was early in june we we don't know exactly the date, and so the jury dismissed that they they treated that as uh these older people their memories were garbled the um confession was dismissed pretty much from the beginning by the way because it it had been uh well, partly trickery and partly pressure, uh, he he was brought in at a in the early evening, like eight o'clock, and started. They spent an hour or two hours, well, three, four burly men shouting at him. Whether they struck him or not, uh, I don't know. I don't think they did, but they they certainly threatened him a great deal. And then they took him back to his cell, where. Uh, Deputy sheriff started reading the charges against him and reading the statements that the uh, witnesses were going to make. And uh, so uh, it was an emotional strain, at least. That went on for an hour. And then he went back and he went through another grilling where they uh, tried to get him to confess. The next time he came back, he had two cellmates. These two guys had come in, they'd been arrested, they were in overhauls and They were highwaymen who had been uh, caught, and one of them proved to be an editor of a local paper, and the other was a deputy sheriff from another county. They were posing as uh, criminals, and they were the the good cop part of the equation. And while he was sitting there after the grilling that had taken place, they were encouraging to confess that it would go easier for him, and they had him dead to rights, and on and on and on. And that went on through the night, and by morning, like four or five on o'clock, he was on—he uh, was hysterical and on the verge of a, of a mental breakdown. He started confessing the fires that he had lit when he was preaching the year before in Sutton, Nebraska. He also was uh, suspected of being a firebug, uh, arsonist, and he he confessed these and then. He kept saying, well, I, I I lit these fires in Sutton, Nebraska, and the officials would say, oh, forget about that. That doesn't mean it. We don't care about that. Tell us about the Veliska murder. They wanted him to confess the murder. He wanted to get them off his back by confessing the, the fires that he had lit. Well, he finally broke down and, and gave this confession. Actually, the confession that I paraphrase was a second confession, which he gave directly to Oscar Winterstrand. Oscar came in the morning. He had confessed at some uh, vague time, 5.30, 6.30 in the morning after the night of pressure. And uh, uh, Oscar came in uh, 9, 9.30, 10 o'clock. And he was calm now. And uh, Oscar said to him, uh, you know, I, I understand you confessed. And he said, yes. He said, but uh, let me... You know, let me tell you what really happened. I I just like to to tell you, and Oscar said he 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 asked me, "Well, can I get a person to write it down?" Yes, you can do that, and so he he gave a a, this confession where he heard God's voice command him and those kinds of things. But it it differed from the confession he had given under pressure earlier, not radically, but different, and that was a. more of a problem for the state than not having any confession really because they couldn't use Oscar's confession uh, really because then they would have to repudiate the one that they had gotten officially and so that didn't uh, that wasn't used but it was knowledge, it was common knowledge they couldn't deny that it was made and so uh, the confession was dismissed also because of the fact that one of the jurors testified or uh, told in an interview that he had an obvious bu- bruise on his face, and so we were convinced that he had been beaten, and so we dismissed the confession. And since they didn't want to convict him anyway, they voted 11 to 1 for acquittal. One juryman held out for acquittal by reason of insanity. He thought Kelly was guilty, but he was insane. And so it was a hung jury, and they retried him a month later, two months later, and uh, he was acquitted then at that time. So he was let go and pretty much dropped out of sight. He he disappeared, didn't come back to Villisca. He did bring a suit against the Montgomery County officials nine months later, and that was dismissed. It wasn't admitted into court uh, it hadn't been properly filed and uh, and so on. And then uh, nobody in Villisca uh, really knew what happened to him. Nobody knew where he died or uh, when he died or any of that or whether he had any trouble in life beyond that and, and so on. Uh, one of the things I, I did in the book was spent a good deal of time and, and really enjoyed uh, trying to trace All of these people, uh, Blackie Mansfield, William Mansfield, uh, Wilkerson's candidate for murder, Wilkerson himself, Albert Jones, F.F. Jones, Kelly. Kelly was the last one I I managed to run down, and he died in a mental hospital in Long Island in uh, 1959. He was psychotic when he died. I died of of a heart condition. He had preached uh, in the East, primarily. He preached at Chester, New Jersey, two years, three years after the trial. He he preached there for uh, three years, and then he left in the middle of the night. He and his wife just took off, left all of their belongings, and went to New York City. Uh, I suspect he got caught peeking in windows. That was a very frustrating part. I went to Chester, New Jersey, and I interviewed several people who knew him, got a lot of useful little tidbit information, the fact that he bought a parrot and taught it Bible verses. And then (laughs) some of his uh, high school youngsters in their Sunday school groups, they somehow got a hold of the parrot, and they taught it profanity. Uh, He was having (laughs) conniptions about that. And then... uh, I interviewed an elderly lady, and I, I asked her, did you know Kelly? Yes, yes, he pre- he was a preacher. I was in the church. Yeah, he was a very good preacher. I liked him. Uh, and he left unexpectedly. Yes, yes, he did. Do you know why he left? Yes, yes, I know why he left. Well, why did he leave? I won't tell you. <laughs> <laughs> and she wouldn't. Uh, she refused to tell me the the motivation, the reason for him leaving. So I I inferred from that it was something sexual. I don't think if it was bad deaths downtown she would have been quite so reticent to talk about it but she, she didn't want to talk about it and I suppose a strange man comes in talking to her. We were alone in the room or sitting out on a porch really in her house and uh, I think she just didn't want to talk about it and so I wasn't able to get an official reason that he left but Uh, My inference is that it was a sexual motivation. In New York, he didn't stay very long. He went to Connecticut and preached there for a while. He then got fired and went back to New York. He went to a mental hospital in western New York for a while in 1930. He then came back to New York. It was very unusual for people to get out of the particular institution he went in, but he got out and was back in New York, and he preached at the Bowery Mission Church, which is quite a famous church. He preached two sermons a day for the mission people. He had been a follower of Gypsy Smith as a young man and had been a boy evangelist in England, in London, and I suspect he had worked for the Salvation Army because Gypsy Smith was very active in the Salvation Army in its early days, and so him gravitating to a mission service probably uh, made sense uh, he then his wife died twelve years before she he did in nineteen forty seven She died in the hospital receiving room he, she apparently had had some kind of a problem and he he rushed her to the hospital and she died in the receiving room. They're both buried in um, Woodlawn Cemetery, big cemetery in the Bronx in New York City. Looks like in a pauper's grave, but they are buried with uh, Gertrude Ederly, who swam the English Channel. Uh, Moby Dick, uh, not Moby Dick, the author of Moby Dick. Herman Melville. Herman Melville. Thank you. Thank sure.
0: You. <laughs> <laughs> that would be Herman a big one, right? very large grave right beside <laughs> <laughs> Unless they melted them down into oil first.
1: <laughs> yes, yes. Um, That's right. They, they removed the oil and then buried the bones. <laughs> well, who knows? <laughs> anyway, uh, I think we covered a lot of ground. I'm not sure. Yeah, maybe I better turn it back to you.
0: We will be back momentarily.
1: Kat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media.
0: When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906, when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Grievous Steed's Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Steed's the audiobook. Available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. And we have returned. Yeah, speaking of his weird sexual fetishes, um, he would put advertisements in newspapers, right? To to hire young helpers.
1: Well, he did once, yes. I don't know if he did more than that, but he did once. He... Um, He was preaching. He had taken a a Methodist job. He he got kicked out of the seminary that he was going into when the murder happened. And he took a Methodist preaching job in a town called Winter, South Dakota. And uh, while he was there in the winter of December, he he put an ad in the Omaha World Herald looking for a stenographer to help with... um, a problem novel that he was writing, he said, and he got a young woman, twenty-eight year old woman, and she uh, answered the ad and said she was might be interested in the job. And he wrote back saying, "You sound fine, uh, but there is one uh, requirement: you have to type in the nude." Well she she was a very religious, religious woman i i followed her for a ways not not very far but i did get some information about her and the last i heard she was working uh, as a missionary on an indian reservation so she was i'm sure seriously uh, involved in the church she took it to her pastor the letter and he took it to the police and they took it to the postal authorities and the postal investigators they wrote a Bogus letter, a dummy letter that they sent to Kelly asking for more information. This sounds interesting, and Kelly, um, of course, wrote back right away. I think there were seven letters exchanged, and uh, they got progressively more salacious uh, until the postal authorities thought they had their case, and then they arrested him for sending obscene material through the mail. Uh, he was uh, tried and convicted. But he wasn't sent to Leavenworth Penitentiary, Federal Penitentiary. Instead, he was sent to uh, St. Elizabeth's Hospital, Mental Hospital in Washington, D.C., because he was ruled uh, mentally ill, rather, uh, and that would have to be dealt with before he could be incarcerated. Kind of interesting, he was held in uh, jail in Sioux Falls, where he confessed to the murder, by the way, to uh, some of the prisoners. But he had a terrible time in prison. Tiny little guy, he got there, and they first put him in a holding tank, mostly uh, drunken disorderlies, I suppose. And uh, they were having great fun with this little guy. Somebody would sneak up behind him and goose him, and he would let out a scream and was literally climbing the walls. And to try to control these people, he was offering to suck them off and he was trying to uh, uh, feel privates, uh, and they were kind of struggling about this. And that happened a couple of times during the um, uh, incarceration, when he was being held before he was tried. He used vernacular language. He, he was more sophisticated sexually than uh, uh, you might uh, expect. He had been in the the cloth all of his life. He 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 had been connected to the church. Father was a minister. Grandfather was a minister. He was a minister, and on and on like that. But he uh, it looked to me like that he he had led a uh, a bit of a double life uh, when he when he was preaching in Carroll, Iowa. And that was in nineteen thirteen the spring of nineteen thirteen uh he tried to persuade at least two high school girls who were in his church uh one at a time he He didn't do them both at once, but he wanted one of one at a time they came They came up to his apartment he was living he had a sleeping room in this house, and the husband and wife lived downstairs. And she was at home, and he was upstairs in his room or rooms. I don't know how many rooms he had. And the girl came thinking he was going to teach her shorthand. But what he did was as soon as she got there, he started to try to persuade her to take her clothes off because he was looking for stimulation with his novel. And he was giving her a rationale that this was in the Bible, that there were uh, posing for uh, art pictures that had been done for throughout the ages. And then he brought out a, a collection of what I think would pass for pornography of the time, of some pictures, drawings, and photographs. Some of them were works of art. Uh, he had a, a picture of the September morn. Does that mean anything to you? it doesn't no september morn was a a very popular kind of a calendar art thing that was painted around this time 1913 had been done around the turn of the century of a young woman naked standing in water that was about ankle deep and she was with her hands in strategic places concealing herself but she had her breasts were revealed and she had a kind of a Ooh, like she had been been out bathing and been caught by somebody because she's looking to the shore, which is behind the observer. And uh, there's a, a figure of surprise on her face, produced a little dog grow verse. <laughs> uh, oh, please, sir, don't think I'm bad nor bold, but where it's deep, it's awfully cold. Uh, well, he had that kind of stuff that he had collected, uh, Apparently kept hidden from his wife, and um, that kind of surprised me. I found that kind of interesting. So he had, uh, and as I said, just two weeks before the murder, in the Macedonia, Billy Miller, the uh, druggist in town, who by the way handled the bloody shirt. I mean, he's the one that you brought your dirty clothes to, and he sent them by train to. The laundry and Council Bluffs got him laundered, brought back. So he handled the bloody shirt, and he was in his house at dark, eight thirty, nine o'clock at night on a an evening, and he heard footsteps walking in the <laughs> vacant lot beside his house. He didn't worry about that. He there were always people cutting through to save some time, and then he heard they stopped, and so he he went to a window and he looked out of the window. And here was Kelly, or he thought it was Kelly, standing outside of the light down at the end of the house where his wife was getting ready for bed. And she had a light on and the blinds were up and the light would shine out and there was a little square of light out from the window. And Kelly was standing out there watching her uh, undress for bed. And he yelled out of the window, get out of there, you son of a bitch, and chased him across the uh, a vacant lot, and he, he Kelly was his preacher, and he was quite sure it was him because of his size and things like that. So at the time of the murder, he was uh, caught in his window peeking.
0: There was a murder of a young Swedish domestic, right, N- named Ava? Swanson. Swanson. Some tried to connect him to that killing.
1: yes. Oh, uh, I tried I attempted to do that. Oh <laughs> and cool. couldn't couldn't succeed. Didn't succeed. Okay, right. But I still think it's an instinct suspicion. Sure. Uh, when Kelly came to the seminary, he didn't have any money at all in his wife. I mean they were dirt poor and the it's a tiny little seminary and the president of the seminary, uh for one thing Kelly was older than most of the of the people that they worked with. As I said, Kelly was already well educated. Uh, he had already uh, preached a great deal, and so he was a prize catch in the eyes of the seminary president. And so he helped Kelly a great deal. Uh, he got him this job outside of Veliska, so he could earn some money during the summer, and uh, he got him uh, rooms in a house at. Uh, was right, right beside, very close to the president's house and very close to the seminary. So he and, he and his wife, Laura, were living uh, at that place during that summer of the murder. And uh, the murder happened And um, in 1915, three years later, Kelly had been released from the mental hospital and was on probation in Sioux City, Iowa. He was on supervised probation. He wasn't in prison. He lived independently. He had to report uh, periodically to a probation officer, and they were getting ready to finally settle the case. They had to decide whether to send him to Leavenworth or let him go, and so on. And uh, during that time, there was a murder in Omaha, and it was... A young Swedish domestic, a young woman who didn't speak very much English yet, come over from Sweden, gotten off the boat, gotten to Omaha somehow, got a job as a housekeeper. I think she was a live-in housekeeper with a relatively um, wealthy family in this house in Omaha. And uh, that guy worked for the um, Union Pacific Railroad. He was in the central office and was a, a... Keeper, controller for the railroad, and his wife left that day and left the the girl alone. She had a dental appointment. She was going to go to the dentist, and so when she came home, the wife came home late in the afternoon. the The girl wasn't there, and she didn't think anything about it because she um, thought she was at her dental appointment. But then when it got to be supper time, and the girl wasn't there, and supper probably wasn't fixed, they, they looked around, and uh, she went down into the basement, the cellar under the house, and there she was, and she was murdered. She had been struck in the head with a axe or hatchet, and uh, there was a, a, a great deal of excitement, and they went through the usual routines of investigating, and they... Um, uh, they, they wondered, um, they said, you know, could it be the Vlisk axe murder? And some people dismissed it because it was, she wasn't in bed and there weren't the similarities. It was, she was down in the basement and so on. But I, uh, I, I went to Omaha and I talked to a, a couple of detectives that, you know, they hadn't worked on a case long after that, but they they couldn't find record of the case either. But uh they had done some work with the case. They, they had themselves, like I was doing, had studied it some. And there, one of the reasons that it was suspicious was it was in the next block from where Kelly's house was, where he was stayed when he was at the seminary in Omaha. And that you know, that's coincidental, but it, it's an interesting thing. And I did check, and so did authorities at the time. And Kelly's whereabouts could not be accounted for during uh, of like a two-week period. He had no public contact. He wasn't in the paper. He had no doctor's appointments. He had no meetings with his probation officer during the time of this murder. And uh, the the young woman was found lying on her stomach and fully clothed, struck in the head, only, the, the axe weapon, I, I can't remember if it was an axe or a hatchet, it, it was a cutting instrument, either an axe or a hatchet, and it's available, I just don't recall which one it was, but it was left at the scene, and one of the detectives said that he thought it was a sexual murder, because he thought that the uh, victim had been uh, undressed, and then redressed. And that was because her clothes, they were disheveled, but they weren't. It wasn't just a case they were wrinkled or pushed up or anything. They they weren't put on right. <laughs> they they. Uh, I don't know what he meant by that. But and I don't know what she was wearing. But um, I thought of the fact that if Kelly was the killer in Veliska, he displayed Lena. Stillinger, in somewhat the same way. She wasn't lying on her stomach, but her posterior, her rear, was facing out, and her leg had been brought up to reveal the genitals. So I, uh, I've often, I don't know if anyone else does, but I, I keep it in the back of my mind that I wonder if there'd be any chance that uh, uh, he could have come back to his old stomping grounds and maybe saw her of uh, some reason, he thought she was alone. Maybe he saw her going to be, you know, you can conjecture all of these things. I have no evidence, no proof for any of that. But uh, I, it's the kind of thing I have wondered about. And uh, if I were younger, I might try a little harder to get the records of the case. I suspect they exist. Uh, most police departments, when you're an, on, an anonymous investigator, and you come in and you say, "I'd like to look at this case," and they say, "Well, uh, we put all of our records in that old repository, and we don't have any idea there there's sixty years of records there. They fill this room to the ceiling. You know, you they, they're reluctant to to get very involved in it. Now they've got a book out. I might go back and say, you know, published author." <laughs> exactly. Yeah.
0: <laughs> You never know. <laughs> <laughs> and this was never solved, right?
1: No, it wasn't solved. Uh, the, the Swedish community was upset by the fact that after a month of investigation, it just kind of was forgotten. And they argued that it wouldn't have been if these had, if, this, if this hadn't been a, a green Swede. Uh, there would have definitely been a, a hue and cry and all of that. And they're probably right. They're probably right. So a while ago,
0: uh, probably a couple of years ago, I I had Rachel McCarthy James on, who, along with her father, Bill James.
1: Right, right. I've met them.
0: Oh, okay. Uh, Yeah, I spoke to Rachel. They claimed that they have solved the Velisca Axe murders and many other murders using statistics. That's correct and pinning them all on a drifter named Paul Mueller, yep. who they call the man from the train. What do you think about their findings, uh, their conclusions? That's a very strong
1: uh, uh, theory. I mean, its I said uh, Kelly was viable yet, but certainly the idea that it was a serial killer uh, is very viable. Uh, I, that's one of the reasons uh, in my own book, I I kind of wrote around that question. Uh, I hadn't, I, I finished, uh, the. I was beyond the writing stage when their book came out. But uh, I still, I didn't have a clear conclusion in my book in the sense that I didn't say Kelly did it or it was a serial killer. Uh, I didn't uh, do that because I didn't feel that was intellectually honest to do that, uh, I think you can make a strong case that Kelly did it, but you can make it a probably an equally strong case that a serial killer did it. James's book has had an impact. I mean, people, uh, it's been widely read, I think. I, I don't have any statistics, but I have the feeling that, uh, you know, I have a, a, I've been giving some presentations in Iowa libraries since my book came out. And uh, I don't go to a, libra- a library that somebody hasn't read the book. And somebody will say, well, what do you think of uh, uh, James's theory? And so th- there are two elements of their theory that I think need to be tested. And if they pass the tests, I think that they will have a pretty strong case that they're right. The first one is uh, Mueller himself uh I've read the book a couple of times, and I haven't looked at it now for a year or more and so I may be, uh you may know more about it than I do but uh as i recall he was working and this is eighteen ninety eight i think in uh Massachusetts he was working as a hired man he was an immigrant from Germany spoke poor english if uh he was uh n- not well, he spoke some English. Uh, he um, got on the train and left the night that the family he was working for was murdered. Now, he lived in that house. They, they, he was a hired man, but they had a room for him in the house. That was not unusual. And uh, about midnight, got on a train and left. Well, they, they treat that as prima facie evidence, I think, that he killed those people. I don't think that is proven yet to my satisfaction, and uh, the basis for that is uh, I have a vague memory of them saying somewhere in the book that he would go out and have drinking sprees. He was cantankerous at times and things like that, but he would go out and come in on his own schedule, and he would come in late sometimes. They also say that uh, uh, many of their murders— uh, have been solved, but they were actually, he, they're suspicious that they had just taken some person, a poor uh, immigrant, uh, language problems, all kinds of things like that, and pinned it on them because they wanted to get the case solved. And uh, therefore, it was still Mueller that was behind it. But you could say the same thing about Mueller. I mean, it would occur to me that Mueller comes home and finds everyone in the house has been murdered, his first thought would be, I'm going to be accused of this. I'm the only one in the house that survived. I'm going to be uh, convicted of this murder. And so he ran. He got on the train that night and uh, made himself scarce. Until that question is resolved, I think we need to keep an open mind. It's. uh, I'd like to see them uh, place Mueller at another murder. They don't. And throughout the book, they assume it uh, and offer arguments that the murders were all alike. But you have to assume that murder that Mueller did the first murder for him to be doing all of the others. Then, and they know where the killer was precisely at each murder. I mean, he was at that house at that time. And admit it, it's awfully hard to find a obscure person in 1906, seven, eight, all of those years. You don't have any credit card, Social Security. You don't have any income tax. Uh, you don't, uh, on and on like that. You don't have police forces that were developed and, and do elaborate collection of information. Many of these murders were in rural areas and so on. But if they could find Mueller at any of those murders, or close by, or somehow related to that, their theory has Mueller living in one place and then traveling out and doing the murder uh, some distance away. And that's based on the murders being tight geographically. And then they'll move across the country. So that's one thing I'd like to see them or someone else. Uh, look into and try to place him there. The other thing is, they got their in their research. They did the research by newspaper. He is uh, a baseball statistician. Uh, he he, do, he uses big data, so he knows knows how to use uh, uh, big indexes and things like that. And uh, that's how he found where the murders were. That's how he found when they were. That's perfectly legitimate research. Uh, great idea. I think he found something like 250 murders, uh, axe murders during the period from 1898 and 1912. Vallisca is his last murder, in the it's not in it's not in the last part of the book, but it's the last murder in his series. Uh, the 250 murders he threw out all of the murders that didn't have any similarity to the uh, uh, index case, the the first murder and Uh, And he came up with, I don't remember the exact numbers, but it seems to me it was in in the 50s somewhere, something like 50 murders that he thinks were committed by Mueller. Now, he does have some uh, caveat there. He divides those 50 in uh, a group of like 30 that are... He's a hundred percent. He's completely convinced. I say he. Both of them worked on it. He and his daughter. Um, he's convinced that they were by the same person. And then he's got a category where he's pretty confident. He he's not as confident as the first group, but he he still thinks it's committed by the same person. And then there's a, a residual group, not very large, of people that. Uh, he won't claim or in the series but all of that similarity is based on the newspaper accounts and those i'd like to see somebody come in and take the murders in his series and see what they can find in terms of official documents those kinds of documents are going to have detail and uh material that the newspapers either garbled or didn't get. Sometimes newspapers would exaggerate, for example, to uh, make their story more interesting or more consistent and things like that. And I don't know, frankly, if you go into a room where uh, everyone, a house where everyone has been slaughtered with a sharp weapon, an axe like that, and they were sleeping, uh, how similar they would all look. You know, I'm not sure whether I can give you an example of one of the reasons that I'd like to see someone. And I'm not at this point criticizing the book. I'm I'm suggesting that uh, there's another book down the road about um, how the man from the train did it. You know, how, how it uh, uh, they could prove it if they could do this. There there are five murders that were always associated in Villisca very soon. That was a, a very common theory from the beginning. That it was a serial killer. You had Villisca, and then you had Colorado Springs back in 11, uh, Monmouth, Illinois in 11, Ellsworth, Kansas in 11, and uh, Paola, Kansas in 12, uh, and then Villisca in 12. Those five have always been tightly grouped together. If it was a serial killer, he did all of them. But they are not identical, and they don't have to be. A serial killer doesn't do exactly the same thing. For example, the environment will sometimes determine serial killer's actions. If it's a serial killer in Monmouth, Illinois, he didn't use an axe because there wasn't an axe available, but there was a a piece of gas pipe with a T joint at the end, and he used it as a club. The killer did, and he left it there. Uh, all of the murders they left the weapon there at the scene, except Paola, Kansas. If yeah, that was done by a smaller instrument, some people thought it was a mason's hammer, others thought it was a small pickaxe, but they never found it. It had been taken with them by the killer apparently. But the, one of the more interesting ones, the Ellsworth case, you had a husband, wife and three children were killed. and the newspapers, which I have read, uh, said that it was obvious that the killer had a special hatred towards Mrs. Ellsworth. One newspaper said something like that. Another newspaper said something like the uh, the killer was especially violent in his treatment of Mrs. Ellsworth. Or Miss, not Ellsworth. <laughs> That's the town it happened in. Showmen were their names. Uh, those papers didn't go beyond that. And so I suspected that there was something, but I didn't know what it was. And I kept looking around. And I've been to Ellsworth at the time. which was kind of an interesting little town. And uh, they, they set up a historical society. And I got talking to them and asked them what they had. And they, before, they hadn't had much. But now that they had a society, they would collected something. And uh, she sent me the director sent me a report from a detective that the report had been written three, four years after the murder. and what happened was the, the board of county board of Supervisors had gotten together and said we ought to try to solve that terrible murder. and uh, can we do it after all this time? And so the first step was they hired a detective firm out of Kansas City, to come and give them advice as to whether or not it made sense to reopen the case. And this is this guy's report. Uh, He interviewed people, looked at things, but he didn't have any firsthand experience with it. But he said he based most of his report on Sheriff so-and-so who did the initial investigation, and so on. And in that report, he said that everybody had been piled up into the bed. And that was one of the similarities in some of these murders. Nothing like that in Velisca, But anyway, uh, they had. And she, Mrs. Showman, was found uh, lying... On her side, I'm a little shaky now, it's been a long time since I've looked at this, with her garments pulled up and one leg drawn up. Now we're close to the way they'd left Lena. And then two toy pistols had been inserted into the rectum. As far as I know, that that's the only one of the cases that he talks about, or they talk about, that had that kind of a direct sexual attack involved, and we need to to really prove that case. In my judgment, we need to go into and look for that kind of a record to to see, you know, they. Uh, I don't I don't remember reading anything about mirrors being covered or certainly nothing about bacon being located. Now, admit it, many of these cases that he reports, those people were dirt poor. You could tell that from what, what he described. And uh, they probably didn't have luxuries like mirrors. They might have had a hand mirror, but they certainly didn't have a large mirror on a dresser, uh, probably. But anyway... Uh, I do think that it's a—it's uh, really a kind of a renaissance in interest in the serial killer, the killer approach to the murder, and largely because of that book. And uh, my, in my own mind, I have never been able to resolve whether Kelly is guilty. I'm personally a hundred percent confident F. F. Jones had nothing to do with it. Right. Yeah. Yep. Kelly. And the other theory, serial killer, needs to be looked at more, I think.
0: Back in a moment. And we have returned. I think that when people think about the Villisca axe murders now, for some, the idea of using an axe might seem a little peculiar, right? I mean, it's not an everyday tool now, like it was in 1912. I mean, in 1912, if you walked up to just about any Front yard, at any house, there would inevitably be an axe lodged
1: in a splitting stump. Right? Yeah. Then you know they've talked about why did why did he pick that house? Maybe he picked that house because there was an axe there. Uh, you're right. Uh, axes were much more common. And the the second thing is they would. Uh, it was a golden age of axe murders. There in that period, the first. Two decades of the 20th century, they, they had more axe murders than we've certainly had since then. Now we use guns and knives, I guess. But in those days, uh, axes were readily available, as you point out. Uh, I've, I've wondered, I've turned over my mind that the, the, the killer is driven, whatever it is, is driving him to, to be a serial killer. And he's waiting for a sign. And that sign is a usable weapon, a weapon. And that's most commonly an axe. I mean, you know, he wouldn't think of a piece of wood, uh, a stick, but an, an axe, that's, that's what I use. That's my specialty. And uh, if I'm anxious and I can't find an axe and here's a piece of lead pipe, well, I, I'll go slumming for one night and use an inferior instrument.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, after reading your book, that, that testimony from the couple... I know. You know d- despite the fact that they couldn't remember the exact date, I mean, it's it's hard in a trial years later to remember exact dates.
1: Yeah, some people have suggested that maybe Kelly didn't do the murder, but maybe he saw it. Right. Uh, I've I've had that come up a lot of times in the past that he was window peeking, Here's a light in this window, and he comes up and he peers in, and either the murder is in process or it's already happened. And he sees these uh, two girls uh, slaughtered in their bed. And uh, then he, you know, he, he, well, the killer's gone. Everyone's dead. I uh, I could see for the first time, uh, here's a a young woman who's going to be absolutely cooperative. She's going to do exactly what I want. And he went in and did it and maybe even tidied up the house. I mean, maybe Kelly's the one that covered the victims and kelly covered the glass and you know the you got to remember occam's razor You, you 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 start spinning out the this thing and i acknowledge it could have happened but i heard this first from jonathan richards the old attorney over in red oak and he he spun it out like i am to you but then he sat back and said but it's too big a coincidence to me. He said, You got to have somebody as mentally ill as Kelly in this little town by chance on that night, and you got to have somebody as mentally ill to do the murder also in that town that night, actually two and a half blocks apart, and they come together. He said, I just can't buy that coincidence. And I never have either, but I acknowledge that people have thought about that, and I've thought about it too. So. We know Kelly's height, the length of the axe,
0: the height of the ceilings. The killer swung up into the ceiling, um, I, I think you said, in a couple of places. Sure. H- how do those measurements work out? Could could Kelly be the one who used the axe based on that information?
1: Yeah. Uh, it does in the one room where the, the ceiling is quite low because it's gabled coming down and... Uh, he could easily have hit the ceiling there. Uh, Not so much in the other room, but uh, if he's swinging the ax, you normally would grab an ax, you know, in front of you, one hand on the base of the ax and the other part way up the handle. Uh, If you're really swinging it hard, you might get like a baseball grip way down on the thing and get the whole length of the ax. But, you don't bring a normal swing back, you know, and kind of touch the ground behind you and then come all the way straight over to, like that, as you would have to do to hit the ceiling in that south room. That's why the testimony of the uh, fingerprint expert from uh, Leavenworth, McClothery, he uh, he didn't think that anybody would hit the ceiling with the axe. Where the cuts were, he measured it, and I can't remember. I th- I thought he said seven feet. I it was either seven or eight feet. They were high, and a, a normal person would swing an axe, wouldn't go that high, and that's why he theorized that the killer had it in one hand and was holding it over his head, as he put it, Indian fashion, tomahawk fashion, and swinging it in a frenzy of excitement. You know, he. Uh, probably had, well, there was blood on the axe when he hit the ceiling because there were blood spots thrown across the room and went into a little closet that's built into that room. The door was open and hit the back wall of that closet so that the the killer was swinging it in that hysterical fashion over his head when he hit the ceiling. That's easier for me to accept than uh, the fact that it was a six-foot-nine killer with exceptionally long arms, (laughs) swinging it normally.
0: Yeah, right. It's amazing that that house still exists now, right? I mean, a lot of those old murder houses are demolished soon after.
1: Yeah, there are only two artifacts that I'm aware of that exist. One is the axe, and the other is the house. That's right. And it exists relatively unchanged now. The, The people who bought it, they took out all the plumbing, they took out all the electricity, they put the porch back on, the porch had been covered uh, uh, and torn off, the f- not torn off, had been covered, and they, they took that off, so that uh, it's really very similar to what it was when the murder happened.
0: Well, thank you for taking the time that, that you took with us. I this you has been so great.
1: I enjoy talking about it. It's important. And as I said, it's it's important to me to get publicity for it so that uh, I sell books and things like that. But, Absolutely. Uh, you know, it's been an enjoyable experience. It gives me a. I've pretty much summarized the case.
0: <laughs> <laughs> There's so much that we didn't even touch. I mean, it's such a comprehensive book, chock full of, of riveting information.
1: Well, uh, the one. Uh, Seriously, I've already this is this is personal. I uh, uh, I've already I'm already satisfied with what's happened. You know, I I was hesitant to write the book and when I did write it, I wondered about how it would be accepted. It's been it's been accepted well. People who have bought it have seemed to like it and uh, I feel good about that. But uh, the best thing is that the story is saved. Uh, it was threatening to be lost. Uh, There's so much interest in this spiritual world and paranormal and returning from the dead and that kind of thing that uh, uh, the story is being distorted to fit that narrative. And things that didn't happen are being interjected. Things that did happen are being misinterpreted and all of that. And at least... The story I've told is the best I can do at going back to what really happened, what the, what the scene was really like, not what you might imagine it to be or not what you would think it would have been, uh, but it it's what the, the doctors and the police found when they went in the house. And the trials, uh, this is what was actually said, not what... Uh, you think they, they might have done or so on. And most of the people who are involved with it don't take the trouble to find the the, the trial information and the grand juries and things like that. And so I, I'm, I'm pleased with that. And I've made enough money to uh, cover my costs, so I'm a winner whatever happens.
0: You said that you did your first interview in the mid-1950s. And I'm not going to guess your age, but I mean, it's been almost 70 years since you started conducting interviews, gathering information. It's such an incredible perspective you have on this
1: story. Yeah. Well, it, um, that, that's, that, I really feel great about that. You know, that, that was, that's my, my primary purpose. And the fact that, uh, uh, I'm selling some books uh, and I make some money. That's great. I, uh, I'm i not opposed to that, of course. But the the purpose has always been the, the story itself. I got involved with it, and so I just, and uh, you know, and I justify it by saying, well, some people go fishing all their life. And I went fishing for information all my life.
0: <laughs> oh, sure, sure. Yeah, so, so for people who want to learn about you, your work, Your book is available online, I assume,
1: bookstores. That's right. It's um, If they Google my name, Edgar Epperly, they'll get a lot of information. Because I've been puttering with this now for a long time, as you say. And as the internet came on, more of it has gotten transferred. And I've written a lot of blog entries for uh, VilliscaMovie.com. That's the... but one that made the movie beforehand. And so uh, they can find out that kind of thing. Uh, the bookstore penetration has not been elaborate yet. We've been working mostly in Iowa, and uh, we uh, you can get it on Amazon. You can get it in uh, any bookstore can order it. It is set up so that it can be ordered by bookstores, but uh, few have done it yet. But that's starting to build. We're going to do some advertising and publicity to try to get it into some bookstores and things like that. But uh, it is available that way. It's also available on Kindle if you like electronic uh, books, and uh, they can do that.
0: Yeah, sounds good, yeah. And we're coming up on the, the 110th anniversary, I realized, as I was
1: preparing to talk with you. That's right. I got married. I got married on the 48th anniversary of it. (laughs) <laughs> oh, <laughs> now, uh, in my defense, uh, my wife, uh, she knew I had, had done some work with this murder, but she didn't know very much about it. And uh, she um, set the wedding date herself. And when, when she set it on the 10th of June, 1960, I thought to myself, "That's a pretty good idea. I'll never forget my anniversary. And uh, <laughs> that's true. Uh, yeah, I, we've been, you know, we've been, we've been married, uh, uh well, I guess it's 62 years now. Um, I have actually, uh, uh, just, I, uh, I'll be 87 at my next birthday and I'm very fortunate that I have remained active. Um, you know, I, I do things in town and I, uh, I've been going on this library tour, making, uh, giving an abbreviated version of what I've given to you in about an hour, uh, that kind of stuff, and I'm able to do that. I've, I've got, uh, I've got some congestive heart failure, but uh, right now it's under control pretty well, and so you you keep going as well as you can. You know, there's nothing you can do. You can't make the clock go backwards. So. Oh right, yeah, that's
0: absolutely true. All you can do is, is push forward, you know. Yeah, sure. But but to write a book, it, it keeps the mind sharp uh, and makes it makes life exciting, and that's got to be so rewarding
1: and and fun for you. No, that's right. Well, so many of my friends, who I don't think are any uh, in any worse figure, physical shape than I am, have have kind of uh, they kind of back away from life now because. Well, as old as I am, I, I really can't do that, or maybe I ought not do that, or uh, you know they maybe I should stop driving, maybe I should do that, and I just don't feel that way. I uh, I recognize that uh, I could succumb at any minute. There, a lot it's a little different than being twenty five, but uh, as long as I am up and around, I uh, plan to do it. Plan to stay there, keep alive.
0: Well, it's been an honor to speak with you about this. It's been so great. Thank you so much. Sure. Again, I have been speaking to Ed Epperly, author of Fiend Incarnate, Villisca Axe Murders of 1912. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world, I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow.